You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, friends. So fun to be here. And I want to start with good news because bad news is coming. Because uh, <laughs> we're in Romans, you know. And so Romans is rough. There's some rough stuff in it. It's, it can be hard to get your brain around. And I'm just going to tell you that today's message is challenging. And so what I did in the first service was I, I thought back to the very beginning of Paul's beautiful letter. And chapter 1, verse 10, he says this before he says anything to them about what to know or what to do or what to think or how to live or how to behave. He says, grace and peace to you without earning it, without working for it, without changing anything. Grace and peace to you first. Because grace and peace to you will lay the groundwork for a lot of other things. So I want us just to take a minute. And let the grace and peace of Jesus sort of fall in and assimilate into our hearts and our spirits today so that we can hear the rest of whatever he has to say to us. Jesus, we breathe in your grace and peace today in a world filled with fighting and frustration and hatred and judgment and stress and anxiety. You are grace and you are peace. And today we just take it in and we ask that you would let that till up the ground into which the seed of your good word will fall. In your name we pray. Amen. It would be easier to preach happy messages if we didn't believe in the Bible. But we do. And so <laughs> here we go. Um, Romans, I love. Romans is like a forest. And if you think of walking out into BLM land and you're kind of surrounded by it all there and the, the trees in the forest is salvation. That's the substance of the forest. That's what the forest is all about is salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross. But if you stop and you listen to the sounds of the birds and the winds rustling through the trees and you smell the aroma of pine, that is freedom. The secondary theme of Romans, it runs all through the, it's so woven into it, you can't even begin to separate it out, is freedom. Paul keeps saying there's a way to be free, there's a way to have freedom, and there's a way to lose it. There's a way to be married to freedom. There's a way to be a slave to sin. There's a way to be a slave to the law. Paul is going to lay all these things out for us in chapter 6 and 7. And he's going to explain to us that freedom is the birthright for those who are saved by grace. And so I think a lot of times we spend some time in the forest and we know the trees are there and we even know we kind of have a spot there, but we don't ever live the life of true freedom as a follower of Jesus. And so today we're gonna to look at that. Eleanor Roosevelt said, with great freedom comes great responsibility. I quoted this recently to one of my daughters and she said, no, it's with great power comes great responsibility and it's Spider-Man. No, that's not the quote I mean. I mean the Eleanor Roosevelt quote, with great freedom comes great responsibility. Because freedom is a gift, yes, but freedom is also a skill. Freedom is something we decide, I'm going to live in this. We know that living in the land of the free and the home of the brave, this wasn't a gift, this was fought for. And so freedom is a gift and a skill, and it comes with responsibility. 
And Paul is going to make this abundantly clear. He's going to talk almost exclusively about sin and the law in terms of bondage and freedom. So history shows us that in the very end of Genesis, Genesis 50, as you turn the page to Exodus 1, in Genesis 50, you find the children of Israel number 60 people. And they are living in Egypt, but they're still free. And when you turn the page to Exodus, you find they number nearly a million people, and they've been living in 400 years of slavery. So that means there's not a single person in the, in the million people who have ever breathed one breath of free air. They've never been in charge of their own time or their own money or their own resources. They've never been able to be a pendant, autonomous people. They don't know what living a free life even looks like, smells like, feels like. Well, how much does it cost? How do you live free? The only person in their tribe who knows freedom is who? Moses. So Moses leads them out into a land where they're not just going to be free, they're going to be dominant. And they, it, God gives them 10 gifts. He gives them 10 statements. We call them 10 commandments. They called them 10 statements. These are just 10 ways. They're kind of boundaries. This is how you can live free. And when we think of 10 commandments, I don't think we think freedom. We think these are the restrictions. In fact, I, I spoke at a conference way out in the middle of nowhere in the Midwest. And you know those Midwest towns are defined by their water towers. You drive into town and their water towers are like, welcome to Vidalia or <laughs> home of the panther. I don't know, all kinds of things. Um, but the one that I drove into was emblazoned with thou shall not kill, the Ten Commandments all around it. It wasn't the most welcoming water tower. Because the Ten Commandments, as part of the Word of God, is not our friendliest piece of work, you know? And really, they aren't just this restrictive idea. These are the ways you can live in true freedom. And so, don't kill builds boundaries around a life. And when you get up against that boundary, you begin to encroach on someone else's freedom, and that's not okay. That will ruin both your life and the tribe. It'll ruin your life, and it'll ruin community. Don't covet says, I'm giving you freedom to love what you have and work for more without sitting around figuring out how to take from somebody else. That's going to ruin your happiness. And so these are these boundaries built in for the children of Israel. It's almost like if you bought a big piece of acreage and you want to have a farm and a vineyard and a garden and all kinds of things there, and you put a big fence around it, but you don't ever build walls on the house or something around the chicken coop, and everything is just everywhere, and the cows are eating the casseroles, and it's all just chaos inside. Even though you've got the boundaries, you don't have internal structure, and so so they've got the boundary of the Ten Commandments, but then God goes ahead and builds this internal structure with 613 other rules, which we call the law. And so the children of Israel had become very dependent on the law as their way to good living and as their way to pleasing God. The problem with the law is it's really hard to keep. It doesn't really work because it's so difficult. And so... 
Paul is telling them in Romans, you can't trust the law to keep you safe. You can't trust the law as your relationship with God. And you also can't trust yourself because yourself keeps sinning. And so what do we do? And he, he shows us this is a matter of being a slave or being free. Look at this, Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. This is not just a body that has sin. This is a body ruled by sin. Um, might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And then 6.9, death no longer has mastery over him. And then 6.12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And 6.14, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. And then 6.17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. 6.20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So it goes on and on and on like this throughout Paul's letter. You were slaves to sin and that was terrible and death was the result. And then you were slaves to the law and that was better, but only by a margin because you can't keep it. And because the law still doesn't lead to relationship and the law is impossible to keep. But living according to the law, even imperfectly, does produce better results than living according to sinful desires. It does, you know, saving money does produce a savings account. Some behavior does make a shift in results. But here, Paul is saying there's more for you than just behavior modification. And in chapter seven, he changes his language entirely and he switches the metaphor. Listen to this, he says, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she is quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So now he's not talking about a slave and a master. He's talking about a spouse and a spouse. And even in this culture, there is a distinct difference between a spouse and a slave. Even though the spouse has voluntarily committed and is legally going to be stuck with this spouse, it's still a voluntary arrangement. But in this culture, a woman, who she marries is going to be everything. It's going to be her safety. It's going to be her reputation. It's going to be everything. And this is a culture that understands slavery. And they understand what it means to be a wife who's married to a lousy husband. And so this is an interesting change because while a, a slave and a spouse are different things, a spouse and a friend are different things too. Both of those relationships are voluntary, but a friendship isn't legally binding. So this idea of you might be married to something else, you, you could be married to one thing and now you could be married to another is interesting. Listen to the rest. So my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took the entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith in God. 
For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. So in this culture where women were stuck with a lousy spouse and it cost them their freedom and it cost them their life and it cost them what they desired, it cost them happiness. He's saying Jesus came to kill the lousy spouse and let you be free to marry the right thing. You're just free to marry. You don't have to marry. You can just stay mourning the old husband. Or you can say, I'm going to step into this new life and I'm going to marry relationship. I'm going to marry relationship with God. I'm going to marry life instead of rules and instead of sin. Because Freedom, I think it turns out, is all about who we trust. And this, this example about marriage is Paul turning the tide and saying, it's not about you being obligated to be with someone. It's your life will be as free as the person you trust the most. Trust and freedom go together. There is no freedom without when you trust the wrong thing. Trust the wrong thing and you're going to eventually be enslaved to something. For my money, the, the greatest kind of slavery that I experience is whenever I, it's not when I trust, I don't trust Satan. I think sometimes we picture, we picture this idea of like the enemy comes and he wants us to worship him or trust him. I think the enemy comes and he wants me to worship me and trust me. Like, you're good enough for yourself. You can, you can run this thing on your own. And I'm a pretty terrible boss of my own life, is the thing. I know I have a lot of responsibility and I have a lot of choices to make. But also, I'm not a great master of my own life. When I trust myself, I choose what leads to my best desires. Well, what do I feel like doing? Or I choose self-protection. I don't usually choose bravery. I choose usually the wrong things if it's me. I'm not a great boss, and I feel bad about that, except neither was Paul. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. That's chapter 7. Paul was also not a good boss of his own life, and he wrote the Bible. So I'm feeling okay about it. But this is just, this is not a... A, a politically correct thing to say. This is not a pleasant thing to say, but I'm just going to say it because I believe it. I don't think we are equipped to run our own lives without the grace and the person of Jesus Christ. I don't. I know there's all kinds of self-actualization we can do. I know there's all kinds of ways that we need to be strong enough and big enough to be our own, you know, to take care of ourselves and be responsible. And, and I think we've built a lot of systems that we say they, get, they should tell me what to do instead. I'll do what that person says or I'll do what that denomination says. I'll, that's whatever it is. I, I, there's a lot mixed up in that. But at the fundamental ground level place of this, I cannot run my own life without Jesus. I cannot do it. I am going to fall into the, the slavery of sin, or I'm going to fall into the slavery of following rules. I think we'll do the job. And so I've got to be willing to say, what do I need to do to trust you in a way that will bring freedom to my life from a weird rule-centered life 
from this thing of like, you can't do that because I say you can't and you get, you know, because we start to look parallel to tell people telling us what to do. I want to know what does Jesus say? This is what I want from you. And I want to follow that voice. I don't care what the rest of the world has to say about it. I don't care what Twitter has to say about it. I'm going to follow that voice because I trust him. But trust is the key. And the thing is, I have loved Jesus for a long, long time. I love him today more than ever. But love and trust are different things. They star. <clears throat> I asked a group of young women who were, had never been married what their number one thing was they were looking for in a husband. And the number one thing by a landslide was sense of humor. So funny, guys. Good job. <laughs> seems, seems like it's going well for you. Um, <laughs> But then I asked a group of women who were divorced and had been through painful relationships what the number one quality was that they were looking for in a man. And by a landslide, it was, I'm looking for someone I can trust. Love and trust are different things. Think right now of all the people that you love, like you really, really love them. Like your cute grandkids and your naughty grandkids and your, 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 your co-workers, whoever it is that you love in your life, you truly love. I have a new puppy and I love her. <laughs> And now think of all the people that you would trust with your bank account password. Not so many. We love differently than we trust. Trust can be hard to come by. In fact, I think we hire people we do not love and we trust them to divide our assets among the people we do love. Like we trust lawyers we don't even like more than we trust children we really, really love. It's not the same. And I think sometimes it's even foreign to imagine that there's a God we could both love and trust with everything in us. I think it's a really big novel concept. The Jews in the church in Rome maybe don't love the law, but they trust it. The Jews in the church in Rome love Jesus, but they're not quite ready to trust him with their whole lives. And this is essentially the whole reason for Paul's letter. You can't trust the law and you can't trust yourself. You must trust grace. You must trust Jesus. So I, <laughs> I recently, not recently, it was a few years ago, I read a book and I just read the, the most boring books you can imagine and find them fascinating and that's a little glitch in my nature. But the book, I'm, you're going to want to write it down because I know you're going to all want to buy it. It's called Toward a More Exegetical Theology. It's awesome. <laughs> and it talks about how you really can't even know at all what the Bible is saying. You can't even begin to presume you know any of it until you get down in the Greek and Hebrew and you untangle all the words and you figure out the grammatical structure and everyone who's trying to tell you anything about God who hasn't done that is a sham. And at some point I just closed the book and I just thought, no, we need a theology that's simple enough for everyone to understand without a dictionary. We need a, a theology that's simple enough for the UPS person and the guy at Whole Foods. We, we all need to be able to access the love and grace in Jesus without a master's degree. We just have to. And 
So for me, over the last few years of my life, there was a time where I knew everything there was to know. I knew ex exhaustively all there was to know about doctrine and theology and God. And now I'm like, I know like two things for sure. In fact, when people ask me sometimes, well, what do you think about healing? Or what do you think? I'm like, oh, you should have asked me 10 years ago when I knew. I don't know now. <laughs> I just don't know. But here's what I know for sure. My discipleship process the whole thing, just discipleship, becoming more like God, following him, being a flourishing believer inside his, you know, in his orchard. Uh, my whole philosophy is two words long. Trust him. Trust him. That's just it. And, and I honestly, I see no other options. And I see no shortcut. Trust him. That's all, that's all I can figure out to do with this thing is trust that he is God and trust that he is good. And that's not going to write any books or win any fans. That's just all I know to tell you is true from this side of 55. Trust that he is God. Trust that he runs it all. Trust that we exist because he says so. Trust that we matter for the very same reason. I only matter because he says I do. And because he says I do, that can never change. No matter whether or not you like what I say up here today. I only matter because he says so. Um, Walter Brueggemann wrote this. The Old Testament has no interest in articulating an autonomous or universal notion of humanness. And this is interesting because I, I did a little, I w read a research project that was saying the number one desire of mankind is autonomy. And so shoot. I, that, this is sad. <laughs> no interest in articulating an autonomous or universal notion of humanness. The human person has vitality as living, empowered, as a living, empowered agent and creature only in relation to the God who faithfully gives breath. You are even breathing on your own. This is all a gift from his hand. In 2015, my husband was dying. He had been put on hospice, and my daughter announced that she was pregnant, and he, they had given him about two months to live, and she was due in July, which would be another six, seven months. And it was just his goal to see that baby be born. It just really was. And so I was just praying and hoping and as the time came and I saw he was rapidly deteriorating and the baby wasn't due yet and I was praying all kinds of things you know you do that thing of like twisting God's arm like maybe you haven't considered this idea maybe that baby could come early and still be healthy and awesome and maybe I mean, I'm just offering all kinds of helpful suggestions up to him and honestly, feeling very desperate of like trying to take the reins of this life that I love and these people I adore and make it work for them all. And at one point I just realized, man, I can't be in charge of Finn's first breath and I can't be in charge of Steve's last breath. If there's, I could maybe be in charge of the whole rest of the running of the world, but I can't be in charge of that. And for some reason, it gave me so much peace to be able to let go just of first breaths and last breaths. If I just don't have to rule that, maybe I could get some sleep. And so let me just absolve you from at least that. We don't have to run first breaths or last breaths. And then if we work our way backward, there's probably a lot of things we really don't have to have any control over whatsoever. And if we work our way from back that, we might, there might even be things we don't have to have opinions on. But that's a different sermon. Um, 
So, Steve, by the way, got to hold that little grandbaby in his arms and dedicate him to Jesus on July 6th. I know it was the best thing ever. And then he went home to be with Jesus 12 days later. And it's like those two men of God just high-fived on their way through, which was the greatest thing ever. Trust him. Trust that he is God. And because if I, if I truly honestly trust that he is God and he runs it all and he owns everything, and yet I keep trying to do it myself, how miserable is my life going to be? If I keep trying to take back reins, it's just going to be really, really sad and hard. So trust that he is God and then trust that he is good. It's hard. Trusting the goodness of God has been the challenge of my life, but it is so, so important because one of the ways that we grow best, uh, a strong trust is in trouble, not in spite of it, in, not around it, or in the absence of it. We think, if God makes things work out for me, then I will trust him. No, when we trust him in the hard times, he makes us something stronger and bigger than we were before. It builds us. Trouble builds trust, and trouble moves us. It's possible to love God inside of trouble, but not trust him inside of trouble. And that was one of the challenges of my life. As my husband's illness progressed, I discovered that my son was turning 15. I didn't discover it. I knew it was coming, but he turned 15. And the problem with that is when you're 15, you learn to what? Drive. And I perhaps am the worst driving instructor in the history of all kind. In fact, I, 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 there is a worst person. There, statistically, there's got to be a worst driving instructor, and I'm sure that it's me. And my relationships with my daughters are still intact, but barely. I mean, it was a big deal. And so, when, and so with them, I let my husband do most of all the driving with my daughters. But then Josiah comes along, and Steve can't do it. And I'm like, okay, I got to do this thing. I'm going to be the brave super mom I was born to be. I'm going to do great. But I had also just gotten a new car that I really loved a lot. I had traded in like the mom SUV and I'm like new car and I love it. And Josiah and I get in the car and we get ready to go. And at some point, I don't remember, I think I blacked out somewhere. But at some point, my feet were up on the dash, which my daughter just reminded me the other day that I still do today, put my feet on the dash when I'm afraid of whoever's driving. And my son like parked the car and he's like, okay, I think we're, we're done here. <laughs> I think we must be done. And um, my husband's friends are so wonderful. And so they made a schedule and they did all the driving with Josiah to teach that boy how to drive. And I didn't have to like he didn't have to divorce me as his mother. And it was good, and he passed, and it's good. Um, but the thing is this. Do I love my car more than I love my son? No. There's not a chance. I mean, that kid, I can't, oh. I, he is the son of my old age. He is, he and I were a team through the hardest moments of both our lives. I would throw myself in front of a train for that kid without a single question. I do not love my car more than I love my kid. Do I love my car more than I trust my kid? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I've had to come to ask myself that. What do I love more than I trust Jesus? 
What am I holding on to with these white knuckles and this clenched grip? And how do I keep it safe and keep it mine and keep it whole and beg God to love something as much as I love it? When in fact, how could I possibly love anything more than God loves it? There's just this fundamental thing in our thinking that makes us believe that we are somehow better parents, better friends, better lovers, better better worker, better whatever than he is. And it causes us not to trust him and to trust ourselves instead or trust the relationship with the rules instead. And so if my own desires, my own ability to control this universe, my own sin, my own whatever is in the driver's seat. I'm going to constantly be feet up on the dashboard. I can't relax. I can't enjoy life. I might be going somewhere in that car, but I am not free. I am bound up by the anxiety that comes from investing my trust in the wrong source. And if I put in that driver's seat a code or a law, or some rules, or some ideas that people have that they want me to go by, if I put that in the law, I might be peaceful, but the car is going to stop a whole bunch of times because that can't work. I can't follow all those rules, right? But if instead I'm able to say, Jesus, Son of God, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to the watching world. But I'm going to hand you the keys to this life. And I am going to sit here and roll the window down and say, let's see what this thing can do on the open road. Let's see what could life look like if I truly, legitimately trusted you to run it the way only you can. What if I trusted you to drive? What if I trusted you to love my kids? What if I trusted you to run my money? What if I trusted you to step into the places in my life where I don't know what I'm doing and give me grace and peace first and then wisdom to move further? Wouldn't that be good life? And so I don't know where you are today, but I know his goal for you is always, always freedom. You may be sitting there in full possession of salvation, but you have never known a day that felt like free to fully, truly trust who he is in your life. And I just want to pray with you because I can see, even as I'm speaking, I can see those areas unfolding in my own mind, the places where I have not let go of the wheel, the places where I'm still hanging on. And I want to live free. I just think, gosh, the time is short. For I, the older I get, the more I'm like, I, how much time do I have left to live truly free and, and joy-filled in a life where God has planted me? I want to live that way. So Holy Spirit, whatever it is that we need to place in your hands today, not even need, I just don't even like that language. Whatever it is that we can joyfully give to you today, that we can invest into you today, Whatever it is that we've kept safe from you, somehow believing we're better at this, we just want to trust you. God, we want to have opportunities to prove you over and over and over and over again because it is sweet to trust in Jesus. And so teach us how. 
And we will be those who are married to eternal, abundant life. In your name we pray. Amen.